All right, then. Let's join the mission. Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. Up to nine already in this new format where we're actually going out into the world instead of being stuck on my webpage. When you're hearing this, it's going to be August the... Let's see. August the 6th, I think. Yes, Thursday, August 6th. That puts me beginning month five of voluntary lockdown, stay-at-home, limit social contact, social distancing, wearing a mask. Is it wearing thin? A little bit. Pretty tired of my own company and my own cooking, but I also am not really interested in getting COVID-19. I've had a friend who lost a sister and a mother to it, so it's not a hoax, and it's something I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. So I'm going to do all I can to keep the hand sanitizer and Lysol wipe companies in business and do my best to not expose myself to it. It's very difficult for me because I'm not generally a homebody. I'm always on the go. Even when I'm not on a trip, I'm always out of the house to go to a meal, to go to a movie, to go meet friends. It's been very difficult not to do that. But, as they say, you need to keep your eyes on the prize. And the prize for me is living long enough to get all my books published that I have in the works. So let's talk about one that's coming out on August the 22nd, so a little less than three weeks. It's a novella-sized reader magnet entitled Dateline Belgrade. And what it is um, is a series of imitative news stories based on events in the Balkans from the year 2000. I've always been interested in the Balkans since I took a graduate course about it in college. I find it a fascinating area of the world. I'm not going to get too much into the history right now because I'm saving that for when the trilogy about the Balkans comes out starting in October. But when I initially drafted what came to be known as Self-Inflicted Wounds, that's the name of the trilogy. As with most of my stuff, it was one book when I started, and very quickly, based on my research, became more than one book. I had sprinkled throughout the first manuscript these news stories that I essentially made up in the sense that they're fiction. They are based on actual news stories, but Seeing as I didn't have the money to purchase the rights to reprint these stories, I would use these news stories to suggest something else that, that I wrote. So based on real events, based on real people, but they are uh, my words. 
So I reached the point where I was ready to have um, a friend of mine who's one of my top beta readers to read it. Now, this was several years ago, uh, probably not long after I retired and moved to where I live now. So let's say eight years ago. And this beta reader also happens to be a journalist who now works for uh, the Gray Lady in New York, the New York Times. So I tend to take her opinion closely. She's also an excellent fiction writer as well. And um, so um, she's very balanced in that aspect, and I respect her opinion. And she told me that the interjection of these news stories kind of slowed the flow or the progress of the story. Well, I was a little disappointed to hear that because I'd worked very hard on researching these news stories to make them appear authentic. But I pulled them out and set them aside. Didn't delete, didn't delete them or throw them away because you never do that. You always keep scenes that you deleted. And figured I'd do something with them at some point in time. I thought maybe at the end of the third book in the trilogy, I'd put them on as an put them in as an afterword. But then I got introduced to this concept of reader magnets, which is a short story or something to intrigue a reader to look forward to an upcoming release. So I put these news stories together in chronological order as they appeared in the original manuscript, but I still wasn't terribly happy with them. I thought they were a little disjointed and incoherent, kind of like hanging out there with no context. So they needed context. And my marketing advisor suggested that I introduce each one with an excerpt from one of the three books. So that took some time to find the right, the right excerpt to go with the particular news story, but I was able to do it and made it a thousand percent better. So what I'm going to do for the next several weeks is read you a few of these news stories in each episode and talk a little bit about even further context. So mainly, why did I decide to use the concept of a news story? Well, in, in the 1990s, uh, and into the year 2000, the Balkans made the headlines a lot, beginning in the early 1990s with the Balkan civil wars, ethnic cleansing, and the condemnation of Europe and the U.S., though very little was done about it. There were a few NATO bombing raids uh, during the Balkan civil wars, but what the Serbian army would do is go and capture UN peacekeepers and chain them to their tanks, their vehicles, and so forth within their positions so that if NATO airplanes came over to do bombing runs, they would end up bombing UN peacekeepers, and that put an, an end to it pretty quickly. And then in 1999, the Republic of Serbia uh, there was still a Yugoslavia then, but Serbia has always been the largest province in the Republic of Yugoslavia. And 
pretty much ran everything. Uh, again, not going to get into the history of Yugoslavia, Tito, post-Tito yet. That'll, that'll come. It's going to be really exciting, I assure you. But Serbia invaded the province of Kosovo, which is very important to Serbian national pride. And there were some massacres, more ethnic cleansing. I, write, I wrote a story that won a prize, won a writing contest um, about one such massacre, and it was entitled Blood Vengeance, which also became the title of a short story collection that I produced that the, that story was in. So the West got serious about this second orgy of ethnic cleansing, and in 1999, NATO bombed Belgrade and several other areas of Serbia pretty extensively. Belgrade in particular, um, its industries and its um, riverfront ports got hit pretty badly. And of course, there was a famous story about a stray NATO smart bomb that hit the Chinese embassy in Belgrade and killed some Chinese citizens. So what had become popular in the 90s as the internet grew and there was more bandwidth and there, was more, there were more people who had access to the internet and were getting their news through the internet, there popped up uh, what was then called um, e-zines or electronic magazines. So this was a, a magazine that you, you subscribed to, or, or in the beginning, many of them were free, and you got them entirely online. Nothing came to your mailbox. And this was a, then kind of a fresh and new way to get the news out about a particular area so or a particular event. Add in the fact that in Yugoslavia in the 90s, there were so many freelance reporters uh, doing the work because, one, it was dangerous, and freelancers are hungry for bylines, so they often go into places where other reporters from regular media outlets, their companies won't let them go because it's too dangerous. They were, they were the ones who brought the news of of the atrocities, the massacres, and the ethnic cleansing from the Balkans. So I came up with the concept that these news stories would be in a European e-zine that I called Eurocene. I googled. Uh, before there was a Google, there was, uh, you know, AOL, and you searched uh, AOL, and there was Yahoo search, and you, you searched on there. And back then, when I first started writing the uh, the trilogy, the, what became the trilogy, self-inflicted wounds, there was nothing. There was no easing called Eurocene. In the books, it also becomes a way for my spy, my Fisher, to embed reports to her boss, which was then a quite popular tactic of hackers and uh, terrorists was to embed a, a encrypted message in an ad, a pop-up ad, or in a, a news magazine story that on the other end could be downloaded and decrypted. So that's how these news stories came about. So once I 
figured out that I was going to do this reader magnet. I went back through these news stories, rewrote them pretty extensively because I had originally drafted them in late 2000, early 2001. I wanted them to be fresh and, and reflect the fact that in that time period, I've of almost, uh, well, of 20 years now, I've become a much better writer. So I'm going to read several uh, stories, probably, I don't know, maybe two, take a little break, do the little commercial bit, read one or two more, and then wrap up this episode for today. Let's, uh, let's get started with a couple of stories from Dateline Belgrade. Chapter 1. An excerpt from Self-Inflicted Wounds, Welcome to Belgrade, Book 1. Not long after Alexei left for White Nights, Mai gathered her cameras and recorders, intending to go cover the night's demonstrations. She pulled out her mobile to call a cab, but it rang, and she recognized Belgrade Police Commander Renovasich's number. "'Good evening, Commander,' she answered. "'What can I do for you this evening?' "'I am in a police car, on my way to pick you up.' "'What have I done?' "'You? Nothing. Well, unless you want to tell me what you have done.' Absolutely nothing the Belgrade police need to know about, I assure you. Okay, well, here it is. Someone did a drive-by on Jovan Ivanovsky's house an hour ago. Jovan Ivanovsky was a prominent opposition leader, a Montenegrin, and Milosevic's security services had tried to kill him a number of times without success. How bad? Mai asked. I am headed to his neighborhood to find out. I thought you and your partner might want to accompany me. My partner is not available. Would I be going with you in my capacity as a Federal Security Bureau observer? Of course. Look, I know Ivanovsky is far from being an associate of Milosevic, and this may be completely unrelated to your, uh, your work, your purpose here. Renovasich said. It wouldn't hurt to look into it, Mai replied. It could be a ruse to throw us off track. You're on your way here. She listened to several seconds of Renovasich's silence and reminded herself to be patient. That was a bit of a bluff. I have no idea where in Belgrade you are. Mai gave him the address. Fifteen minutes, he said, and hung up. Not knowing what would await her at Ivanovsky's house, Mai assumed she'd be gone the whole night. She could let Alexei wonder, a little payback for his infatuation with white knights. No, she was making too much of that. Or she wasn't making enough of it. Still undecided, she wrote him a note and left it on the kitchen table where he'd see it. Eurocene, Dateline Belgrade, exclusive to Eurocene from the Serbian Renewal Movement. Eurocene's Belgrade correspondent received this email in English 
and we have printed it in its entirety, with some editing for English grammar and punctuation. This article illustrates two points. Yugoslavians interested in justice do exist, and the state of affairs in that country is beyond desperate. Our correspondent has provided explanatory notes in brackets. Editorial staff. A truck is the killer. The only way our country can emerge from its deep crisis is to follow the rule of law and assure we have democratic elections. Any other process will worsen our political, social, and economic status and lead to more civil war. However, the current regime isn't interested in changing Serbia by peaceful democratic means. Its use of state terrorism is blatant, and it is anti-everything. State, nation, democracy, human. A recent attempt on the life of SPO leader Jovan Ivanovsky by a killer truck and the murders of four prominent SPO leaders prove this. Correspondents note, this attempt where a large truck ran cars in Ivanovsky's entourage off a mountain road took place last year. The police termed it an accident, but four people were killed. Ivanovsky himself escaped injury. Our experts have discovered Yugoslavian customs had confiscated the killer truck from its owner in 1996 and then assigned the killer's truck to Serbian state security. The killer truck's license plate is among those on a secret registry of special vehicles. A few days before the crime, the killer truck needed some sort of repair, which was accomplished at an auto repair shop used by state security, and the repair bill was paid by state security. In Belgrade, the killer truck was loaded with sandbags and moved near where Ivanovsky was traveling to in preparation for the attack. The day after the crime, state security members descended on the repair shop, rounded up all the workers, and threatened them unless they remained silent about repairing the killer truck. When queried, a state security spokesman admitted the National Security Service had had a Mercedes truck repaired there, but they said it only resembled the killer truck and was not the same because it had a different serial number. We asked to see the truck resembling the killer truck, but we have not received an answer, because the similar truck does not exist. Also, someone disappeared, the secret registry, of state security vehicles. We can come to only one logical conclusion. The killer truck used in the attack against us does belong to state security. And the customs officer who originally confiscated the truck has also died in a car accident, one that occurred not long after the attack on our members and after an announcement that the official would be a key witness concerning that attack. News of the custom official's accident has not appeared in any media 
which is unusual when a federal official dies. An ex-security service member told us the custom official's accident was clearly a political assassination. We believe that key witnesses' assassination was ordered by none other than the security service's Serbia chief, along with the security service's Belgrade chief, who are members of the Yugoslav Left Party, founded by Slobodan Milosevic's wife, Miro Markovic. Foreign press have reported that the security services are now controlled by this party and by the Serbian Socialist Party, and they have turned the security services into a terrorist organization. Our Constitution established a safety board to control state security and all other police forces, but its meetings go unapproved and no one has established an investigation board for the killer truck accident. We believe those now controlling state security have planned many acts of terror, many assassinations, bombings, and other crimes. In other words, the current regime is behind these criminal and terrorist acts. There is no other credible conclusion. From state security come other terrorist actions, stopping democratic broadcasts on state television, arresting and abusing local functionaries and even ordinary citizens and denying them their rights, executing orders to beat students and other participants in legal protests, preparing legislation to stifle free media and free speech, fostering civil war in Montenegro, etc. Any and all of this will destabilize the entire region. This is totalitarianism, pure and simple. The Yugoslav Left Party and the Serbian Socialist Party push us closer to civil war at a time when we need peace and democracy for our political, economic, and national problems. We will fight this any way we can. We will stop state terrorism and these deadly anti-democracy events. To us, the murderers of our four brothers by the killer truck, everyone who is covering up this crime are the true enemies. We have put them on a wanted poster. We will bring them to justice. Peacefully. Unless they make us use force. We will never forget or forgive. We will never be quiet. We have taken a vow for justice and for freedom. Otherwise, this regime will fill Serbian cemeteries to overflowing. All for justice. Justice for all. Chapter 2 an excerpt from Self-Inflicted Wounds, Welcome to Belgrade, Book One. The address Oleg had given her was a mid-rise office building. Most of its windows were boarded up, but my fisher could hear music, something soft and pleasing, a Bach fugue, she believed. At the door, she put her hand on the butt of her beretta and rang the bell with her left. The door opened and confirmed the Bach, but also framed 
a tall woman with overdone hair and exaggerated makeup, a hot pink, floor-length negligee trimmed with black feathers swirled about her ankles. Not a woman. Either a transvestite or a transsexual, Drago Kovac must cater to a variety of sexual preferences. The woman looked her over. You have the wrong place, darling, she said, her voice like a Serbian Harvey Firestein's. The male brother is... I'm here to see Kovac, my said in Serbian, courtesy of Oleg Dimitrov. The door opened wider, the woman stepping to one side. Mai unbuttoned her coat as she entered so any security inside would see her Beretta. This way, darling, the woman said and minced across the lobby. A few customers' heads turned. Mai was still in her leather outfit, and Mai scanned her surroundings. An assortment of women stood around or lounged about, talking to men, sharing drinks, or exchanging gropes. At first glance, the women appeared to enjoy the activity, but Mai caught the disconnect in their eyes. A thin woman wearing a leather bikini and thigh-high boots posed against a wall, one hand on her hip. Dark red lipstick outlined a sullen mouth, and coal-ring eyes stared at nothing. A studded dog collar was tight around her neck, and she wore elbow-length black leather gloves. In her other hand, she held a long dog leash, and Mai followed it to where a girl, no more than twelve, sat on the floor. The leash ended at a matching dog collar on the girl's neck. Her outfit was a grotesque imitation of the woman's, and the girl looked enough like the woman they had to be mother and daughter. A man walked up to the woman and handed her a drink. He reached down and patted the child's head, as if petting a dog. The mother faked interest in what the man said to her, but the child's eyes showed she'd gone far beyond fear and indifference. Eurocene, Dateline, Belgrade. Just a commodity. Belgrade correspondent. Warning, the subject matter of this article is explicit and may be disturbing. Had the West been able to foresee what bringing down the former Soviet Union would cost in terms of lives and dignity, would they have systematically continued on that course? Yes, they would have, and they would say, the Soviets were working as hard to bring us down as we were for them. However, the Soviets would never have succeeded because they couldn't. The massive military spending was conducted solely to address the economic and strategic power of the West, to appear to be an equal power. When the Soviet economies could bear no more, the inevitable occurred. To apply strategic language, what happened afterward was collateral damage, a phrase the West tosses about with characteristic arrogance. We see the pictures of the old soldiers and babushkas, their pensions evaporated, put out on the streets to freeze or get lead poisoning from bootleg vodka. We see the unpaid soldiers in tattered uniforms selling their services to any mafia boss who comes along, 
and the West shrugs. They brought it on themselves, Western politicians say, with their commitment to communism. Hidden from our eyes, however, is an age-old commodity whose supply exploded with the failing economies. Women, many of them well-educated, who in the rush to adapt to this new Russia or new Bulgaria or new whatever, ended up on the streets, too, because there are no jobs for them. The jobs that exist must go to men who support their families. The influence of the Orthodox Church and other Christian denominations seeking inroads among the former faithless. These women have become easy prey to white slavers, a term from old B-movies brought into awful reality. The Russian mafia learned well from its American and Italian counterparts, who no longer eschew prostitution but covet the profits from it. They addict these women to drugs, sell the use of their bodies to pay for their fixes, and keep the profits for themselves. Much as American plantation owners bragged about roofs over the heads of slaves and food on their tables, these modern-day owners of human flesh evoke charitable motivation for their prostitution of a generation of Eastern European women. Some of it has a veneer of civilization in so-called matchmaking services. An ad in some European or American fringe magazine offering catalogs of Russian women dolled up for a photo shoot a head-and-shoulders photo that doesn't show the emaciated bodies with needle marks on the arms and legs. Olga is 35, has a Ph.D. in applied physics, and is eager for an opportunity in America. Tatiana is 28, studying law, looking for a companion who will support her legal training. Nadezhda is a 32-year-old surgeon seeking the partnership of a doctor husband with whom she can set up a medical practice. Many of the women are sincere when they post these ads, paid for with money borrowed from the men who pose as marriage brokers or matchmakers, but whose only purpose is to exploit them. In many cases, the matchmaker business is a front. The women exchange letters with a fake potential husband, receive money to meet that potential husband in another country, and may actually meet a man playing the part, some rohypnol in a drink, and the woman wakes in her new home, a brothel, informed she has to work off the cost of the ticket plus interest, work off the cost of her room and board, her clothing. Those are some expensive items because the payback takes years. The women who sign with legitimate matchmaking services often end up no better. At first, everything with the new husband in a foreign land is blissful. A few years later, and after a child or two, the women find out the bargain is one-sided. Their job is to stay home and make babies. Often the husband excludes the wife from family events. She doesn't speak her husband's language, after all, and gets no encouragement to learn. The man has essentially paid for a domestic slave, one who cleans his house, cooks his meals, and because of her upbringing doesn't refuse his demands for sex. If a bought bride does protest, the result can be verbal, emotional, or physical abuse. If the wife becomes too troublesome, 
the husband can kick her out. Some men have even hidden green cards or have notified the INS that the marriage has been dissolved, making the woman now an illegal alien. For the women who manage to get a divorce, many have lost custody of their children. If that happens, and if the woman gets deported, she may never be allowed to see her children again. Then there is the lowest of the low. Kidnappers, who see the potential largesse in snatching a young, pretty girl of any age off the streets. The victims are immediately raped and sold to a mafia pimp. The lucky ones get set up in dormitories where they are fed and get medical treatment for unwanted pregnancies or sexually transmitted infections. But they don't receive condoms, usually because the customer doesn't want to use them. In the worst-case scenario, they are denied abortions on religious grounds, but receive punishment for getting pregnant. Many are kept compliant with drug addiction and the continued promise they can work their debts off, that they'll be freed when that happens. But this debt compounds like interest. They will never pay it off. They can't say no to a customer. They can't insist he wear a condom. Those not killed by drug addiction die from AIDS. Indeed, AIDS is quickly becoming the scourge of the former Soviet Union, and much like the U.S. in the 1980s, the governments pretend it doesn't exist. At the root of the rapid spread of this disease in Russia, for example, is typical Russian fatalism. If I die, I die. The twisted dependency of the mafia on police indifference, proportionate to the bribes they receive, means these whorehouses are never raided and operate at times with off-duty police providing security. There have been games between rival whorehouses, women who mud-wrestle each other to heavy betting. There are rumors of a house in Albania where women fight to the death. You know, said one Russian mafia boss, like cockfight in America, except these are cuntfight. A woman's career in one of these houses ends in her late 20s unless she can hide her age well. But the mafia boss gets a final payment from her by selling her to a colleague's porn movie studio, often ones that specialize in snuff films. The lowest stratum of women work the streets on their own for meager amounts of money to feed a child or to buy drugs, often cut with harsh cleaning powders. Pregnancy, of course, means no income once the pregnancy begins to show. As one pimp said, who wants to fuck a fat pig? Saddest of all, women have become resigned that this is their only fate. One girl, 15 or 16, but old beyond her years, defied the orders of her pimp not to speak to me. She said, who would want me now as wife? What man would marry me? I'm filth. This is the only thing I can do. And the girls in the houses and on the streets are younger and younger. One pimp explained, We supply what is S for. Men want a young virgin. The trouble is you are only a virgin once and we have to keep a constant supply or we lose customers. The only escape the women know is death. 
You can't leave your house or your pimp because the punishment when you're caught is severe and you will be caught. The mafia pay impoverished families to turn in their daughters and sisters who've escaped. The light punishment is removal of fingers, cuts to the face to leave disfiguring scars, further locking them into slavery. All cats are gray and dark, one pimp said and laughed. Besides, my customers are not interested in the face. For repeated attempts to escape, the punishment is death. The body of a 17-year-old girl from Romania was recently recovered from the Danube, her nose and breasts cut off. She had been raped so forcefully she was torn open between her vagina and anus. Police indicated she had been arrested several times for prostitution. These numerous arrests are often for nothing more than walking down a street and are really police extortion to get larger bribes from the pimps. In the case of this Romanian girl, her pimp claimed the body, which he sold back to her family so they could give her a decent burial. Yet another way a pimp gets a final payment. When I confronted the pimp about the girl's death, he gave a customary mafia businessman's reply. They are only a commodity. All right, let's take a little break. Dateline Belgrade is ready for pre-order for Kindle. The Kindle version and the paperback version will launch on August 22nd. I'll probably do some sort of little launch event on uh, my Facebook author page, but I'm not really certain right now, seeing as all in-person book events are pretty much scrapped for an indefinite period of time. But you can pre-order Dateline Belgrade for a special introductory price. So you'll get this full-size novella showing up on your Kindle on August 22nd for 99 cents. And you can pre-order Dateline Belgrade at the following URL. bit.ly slash Dateline Belgrade with a capital D in Dateline and a capital B in Belgrade. So bit.ly slash Dateline Belgrade. And if you're interested in more intel, as I call it, about my upcoming works or about my writing process and what goes into it, also what I'm reading, sometimes related to what I write, sometimes not, or an author I recommend, you can sign up for my newsletter called Secret Briefings. And you can do that at bit.ly slash secret briefings with the S in secret and the B in briefings capitalized. So bit.ly slash secret briefings. And finally, if you want to look over any of my other work, I have about 12 to 15 collections of short stories, novellas, novelettes, reader magnets, and uh, novels 
available. You can find them at amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan, P-H-Y-L-L-I-S-D-U-N-C-A-N, all scrunched together. So, that's the commercial for now. Ignore it if you want, or rush over and take a look at my work after you finish listening to this, of course. So, let's read one or two more of these episodes from Dateline Belgrade. Chapter 3 an excerpt from Self-Inflicted Wounds, Dangerous Truths, Book Two. The large room served as a library and office. A mishmash of bookcases lined the walls, some to the ceiling, some shorter. Books, magazines, videos lined every shelf, two or three deep in some places. Several shelves bowed enough that one more item might break them and send their contents to join the chaos already occupying the worn, stained carpeting. Small tables had been turned into desks, cluttered with computers and television sets, all turned on but their volumes muted. State television played on some, CNN on others. Stacks of newspapers and magazines, dirty dishes, cups, and glasses— and overflowing ashtrays had been stacked on the floor. Someone had cleared a space on one of the tables, and a bottle of plum brandy and three relatively clean glasses sat there. A tall man stood by a window and smoked. He was thin, his clothes loose and haphazard, his countenance dark and rough-featured. When Zoran Jinjic closed the door, the voices and music were muffled. He inclined his head toward the other man and looked at my fisher. Stanimir Atelievich, this is Catherine Burke, he said, using one of Mai's aliases. Atelievich said nothing, and Jinjic went to the table with the brandy and poured four fingers into each glass. He picked up a glass and looked at Mai. She and Atelievich took their glasses at the same time. Gingis toasted everyone's health except Milosevic. They drank, and the sweet, strong brandy slipped easily down the throat. Atelievich settled a heavy-lidded, sullen gaze on Mai. I heard you wish to speak with me. What about? The murders of Milosevic's friends, Mai said. The two men exchanged a glance, not a guilty one, but surprise. "'Who are you again?' Atelievich asked. "'My name is Catherine Burke. I work for the U.N.' "'The U.N. or NATO?' "'The U.N. What do you do for the U.N.?' "'Officially, I'm in the business of refugee relief.' Atelievich drank brandy and studied her over the rim of his glass. And unofficially, I gather information. Eurocene, Dateline, Belgrade. A Flood of Violence. From Stanimir Atelievich, speech at a recent protest. Citizens, mine is a simple message. We cannot have democracy 
without democratic elections. But in a country suffering under Milosevic, we cannot expect a democratic vote. We can't even hope for it. Why? Because of Milosevic, we are about to drown in a flood of violence. We must protest that violence loudly and demand not only a democratic election, but also democratic order in our country. We all want to live in a non-violent country, but first, we have to teach ourselves what peace means for us. But this flood of violence leaves us in perpetual survival mode, scared, helpless, and losing hope. The only cure for this is a democratic state. However, we have neither democracy nor a state. But we can build both, and in so doing there are things we must have. Kosovo must remain part of that democratic state so that Serbs there may live in peace there, so that Serbs who fled terror there and became refugees in their own land can return home. There can be no further breakup of the state we have. All ethnicities who are our friends belong here. In the past decade, this flood of violence has inundated us like a tsunami. Its intensity seems sudden and new, but it is not. It has been a continual flood for a half century or more. Some have told us to meet that violence with more violence, that we have to revenge the wrongs done to us. We must resist that temptation, that is the easy way. But democracy comes only after the hard work. When we finally complete our work for this democratic state, we cannot have revanchism. We must cast extremism aside and assure we do not have revanchism. The only way to assure this is a democratic election. We also desperately need national reconciliation. Serbs must, as the Americans say, bury the hatchet. In the ground, not in someone's face or back, even if this has been done to us. We must end division, stop the arbitrary separation of citizens into groups labeled patriots and traitors. Our current rulers call themselves patriots, but of Milosevic's many sins, the worst are against his own people and Serbia. That is no patriot, and the people of Serbia are not traitors for opposing him. He must go. Our democratic state must be different from what we have now, and not only to stem the flood, the elite who rules us now does not share our desire for democracy, but recently we see that this violence has begun to thin the herd so that the few obsolete survivors stand alone. I know here many of you are Milosevic's party, but you are here because you know the state as it is now will only drown us in that violence, 
because you know Milosevic has failed you and betrayed all who trusted him. Now he can no longer trust those who were loyal to him, and no new allies are rushing to his aid. The dwindling number of his sycophants distrust each other too much to govern. Now, another river fuels this flood of violence, one from beyond our borders. The powerful in Washington, in Brussels, with their sanctions and their bombs in support of terrorism from Kosovo, intensify the flood. These power brokers tell us they are acting from humanitarian interests. Serbs have starved under these sanctions, have had their environment poisoned, and we are supposed to believe them when they say this has been done for our benefit? It is all violence flooding us. We must survive. We must survive. We must stop the violence from within and not look away from that external violence from the United States and from NATO. We must never think it is for our benefit that it is to help us. If we ever do, we have lost ourselves as Serbs. We will never be free of the foreign violence that enslaves us until we damn our internal violence. Only we can do this. We will reject assistance from the very entities who brought violence to us from outside. Otherwise, we will simply exchange one master for another who could be worse. If we do not do this on our own, we must acknowledge our disgrace and not call ourselves Serbs. The slavery we now endure is much more significant than petty political differences. A democratic Serbia and the fight against violence from any source are what will unite us. And we will win this war. Once we win, we must remember our power comes only from the people. Any power we have is not absolute or permanent. Only Serbia is unending, a free and democratic Serbia. That is what we fight for. And with God as our champion, we will create a Serbia that is free. Thank you. Revanchism is a political policy of revenge or violent recovery of territory lost in war. Chapter 4 An Excerpt from Self-Inflicted Wounds Welcome to Belgrade, Book 1 Nelson said, These assassinations which the lovesick lawyer recently accused you of, plus a litany of others in Yugoslavia, are reaching a tipping point. The police, of course, are barely investigating, except in the case of Arkin's murder, only because that was so public, and he was such a hero to many, Mai said. Nelson nodded and continued, These killings have been going on for almost a decade, but have increased in the past several months. The victims are major and minor government officials, journalists, military officers, police, and collateral victims caught in the overkill. The conviction rate is almost nil. States decided it's time for a change in Yugoslavia. Change at the top. 
I thought after the Dayton talks this administration declared Milosevic was the only person it could deal with. Mai said, Eh, Kosovo changed that. Pissed the president off royally. Well, that's why we dumped several thousand tons of bombs on the country last year. Kosovo changed that. Pissed the president off royally. That's why we dumped several thousand tons of bombs on the country last year. Department of State wants the Milosevic regime destabilized. But it has to look as if it's from within. And they want Milosevic out. Also from within. The most efficient way to do that might be to let the murders continue. Nelson shook his head. That's the easy way. And what if it isn't Milosevic behind it? but the opposition. A replacement for him must come from the opposition, but Department of State doesn't want someone with blood on his hands. That would be a first, my thought. Eurocene, Dateline, Belgrade. Blood and Tears, Belgrade Correspondent. It was Orthodox Easter Sunday, 1999, a beautiful day in spring. The NATO bombing was on a brief hiatus, a perfect day for couples to stroll hand in hand, and that's what this one couple did. They took a long walk, they spoke with friends, they had lunch, lingered over it, and headed home. The sun was warm, the day brilliant, a day to cast off the cares of work and to spend together. The difference between this couple and all others enjoying the day was that this couple was constantly watched and recorded by state security, the dreaded secret police. The surveillance team's report might have looked like this. Subjects left apartment at 1.53 p.m., walked on Knez Mihailova Street, spoke with an old couple in front of the Russian Tsar Cafe, talked to a bearded man who wore glasses for a quarter hour. Subjects walked in Calimegdon Park until 3.53 p.m., lunched at 3.56 p.m. at Kolarak Restaurant, alone, left restaurant at 4.27 p.m., walked toward their residence on 49 Molarova Street. At 4.58 p.m., we received orders to cease surveillance. Two minutes later, at exactly 5 p.m., Three men approached the couple and, without warning, shot the man point-blank with machine guns. The three fled the scene in a car and were lost in traffic. The wife, unhurt, cradled her husband's body, her tears mixing with his blood. Slavko Taruvia died on the sidewalk before the entrance to his apartment building so close to safety, but so far away. Yet another friend of Milosevic to have been murdered in the past decade. Karuvia was a noted journalist, a publisher of or contributor to journals censored after the passage of a 1998 law. This law allowed the authorities to shut down any publication, television program, or radio station that threatened national security. In other words, any part of the media that had criticized Milosevic. Media in Belgrade speculated Milosevic himself requested the law and the parliament controlled by his party passed it. The Serbian parliament isn't called Slobo's rubber stamp without cause. 
Karuvia, had been the first and the loudest to denounce the law and Milosevic for it. He did so in publications that wouldn't censor him, the Daily Telegraph, the Weekly Telegraph, and European Magazine. However, he'd committed other serious offenses. For example, in his writing, he didn't refer to ethnic Albanians in Kosovo as murderers or terrorists. He was the first journalist to publish a graphic of the symbol for Otpor, the organization of pro-democracy students, a stylized, clenched fist. This offense resulted in a heavy fine, millions of dollars, and a five-month jail sentence. Until that law and the legal action, Karuvia and Milosevic had been close friends. Karuvia and his wife were part of the Milosevic-Markovic inner circle among the privileged few. A fall from the heights of power to bleeding to death on Easter Sunday in your wife's arms. Karuvia's wife, name withheld for her protection, who is an historian, Karuvia's friends and the average person on the street believe the surveillance of the journalist was called off deliberately, so the secret police would have free reign to murder him. This cadre of secret police is sometimes called Milosevic's hidden hand. They are special operations police and are believed to have spread terror in Kosovo in 1999. Other nicknames are the men in black, for the black ninja-like garb they prefer, the Frankies, or Frankies boys, after their first commander, Franko Samatovic. They are simply Milosevic's secret army, who have no constraints, but who have immunity from police attention. Yugoslavia and Serbia, its largest province, have many layers of police and special operations units, equivalents of SWAT and special forces. Whatever the secret police call this unit, the consensus is they are merely trained killers. Think of them as Milosevic Praetorian Guard. They operate under the auspices of the government, but are completely outside the law. Their purpose? Settling personal scores for Milosevic and his family. Says Kruvia's wife, Seeing the mechanism of an ugly state, Seeing how the state security agency has been turned into the political police is so horrifying. Official government spokespersons respond, somewhat foot in mouth. Internal security only goes after the enemies of Serbia. It all rather depends on one's perspective. This Easter was gloomy and wet but people remembered a journalist who had died in the street. He wasn't the first, nor the last, but the average Serb shrugs. Such is life and death in Serbia. All right. I think that gave you a little flavor for the types of things you'll find in Dateline Belgrade. And I 
didn't select these stories on purpose to read today. I've read them in the order they appear in the novella. So any resemblance that the events I talk about may have to events occurring now in this country is purely coincidental. But I do have a friend who left the Balkans, specifically Cro the Croatian province of Yugoslavia, before the Civil War started, and he became an American citizen. But he followed events in the former Yugoslavia fairly closely. And he remarked on Facebook the other day, he compared a scene where um, state security police were beating up demonstrators uh, in Belgrade, which still happens, and police who were doing the same thing to protesters here in America. And his comment was simply, who says the United States isn't like Serbia? It's a little tongue-in-cheek, but take the meaning for what you will. Again, purely coincidence that I read those today. I didn't plan them in any particular order. You have to remember, again, I started writing these things almost as they were happening in the year 2000. So 20 years ago, I had no clue what we would be going through as a country 20 years ago. In fact, I thought it could never happen here. So obviously, my training as a historian needs to be improved a little bit. All right, so next week, we're going to read a few more stories, a few more of these news stories and their accompanying excerpts. And I will, I hope that you will uh, join me. In the meantime, you can tell your friends about this podcast. You can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iTunes, and uh, any other of the major podcast distributors. So thank you for listening. And have a good week. Stay safe. Keep socially distant. Wear your masks. And have a good week. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Radio. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.